You're listening to audio from The Village Church, a community that's formed by the gospel and sent on God's mission, gathering weekly in the heart of downtown Hamilton, Ohio. For more information about The Village or to connect with us, you can find us online at myvillagechurch.com. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Our focal passage this morning is in Hosea chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. You can read along on the screens. You can also look in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, connect with the connection desk and they'll get you one. So, Hosea 3. And the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lathic of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without kings or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord of their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. You all can be seated. Any children here can be dismissed to classes. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, My name is Scott. I'm one of the pastors here of the village. It's good to see you all. Today I get to preach, uh, yeah, what we just heard through Hosea uh, chapter 3. Very short chapter, uh, five verses, but... uh, it's a chapter that uh, some people would call like the greatest chapter in the Bible. There's a, a commentator, theologian, writer, James Montgomery Boyce. He said this, that the third chapter of Hosea is, in my judgment, the greatest chapter in the Bible because it portrays the greatest story in the Bible, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ for his people in the most concise and poignant form to be found anywhere. So this is somebody's favorite chapter in the entire Bible packed down into five uh, little verses. And so that's what we get to dig into today uh, and unpack together. I'm excited to do that. But uh, first, would you all just pray with me? Father, uh, we need your help this morning. Uh, I need your help. Uh, We all need uh, your help. Your word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, and it pierces down Uh, into the depths of our hearts, into places that maybe we don't even know are there. And so, God, I just ask that you would help us to see this morning uh, the places in our life where we we love other things, other people, competing loves that we have more than you. And God, I pray even more than that this morning, that we wouldn't walk out of here knowing our inadequacies, God, but more than that, that we would know how adequate you are, how above-adequate you are for us, that your grace is abundant and that you lavish us with it in Jesus. And so help us to see that this morning uh, as we talk about your redeeming love and walk through these five verses. And I pray that maybe today that uh, some folks would say this is their favorite chapter, but regardless that they would see themselves in this story and that it would be their favorite story because you are at the center of it. So God, help us to see that. Help us to worship you uh, today as we listen, as we talk, as we pray and sing uh, and all the things. Stir in us what you would have done today. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right. So uh, imagine, uh, if you can, and for some of you this will be very, very easy because like this literally just happened. Imagine a wedding. Imagine a wedding. Think about it. Think about what you see at a wedding. Think about what happens at a wedding. Think about uh, maybe one you've been to recently or one you've seen on TV or in a a movie or read about in a book uh, or whatever. Think about what you hear, what happens during the ceremony, what's said. Now, you might think about a lot of different things. Uh, If I gave you enough time, one of the things that you'd probably think about is the the I do part, right? Like the the vows, where we say the vows that that couple make to one another, and and they usually sound something like this. Uh, Do you, so-and-so, take other so-and-so, whom you hold by the hand to be your true and lawful wife, to love and to cherish her in joy and in pain and sickness and in health for richer or for poor and forsaking all others for the rest of your life. If so, say I do. 
And then hopefully, hopefully what they say is, I do, right? Now, uh, the funny thing is like in, in the age of Pinterest weddings, uh, when everyone loves to do like kind of their own thing and be creative with ceremonies, which I honestly love, I think it's super fun. Uh, one thing that's almost always the same across the board, at least for uh, weddings that I have officiated, uh, is, is the vows. Like couples might want to take a moment off to the side to share private words. Maybe they wrote a letter they want to share to one another privately. But then when it comes to publicly saying vows, they want to go with the traditional vows. So I don't know exactly why. My guess uh, is that folks continue to be drawn to those vows because those vows draw from, from something that's longstanding, right? And they point to something that's longstanding, a, a relationship that's not bound by circumstances or performance or convenience or comfort, but, but it points to a love that's steady, right? Rich or poor, sick or healthy, joy and pain. Those vows declare a covenant love that's greater than, than any of those kinds of things or categories of things. But now imagine if if couples were able to look into the future and they were able to actually see the stuff that they would face together, maybe even like years down the road, and then they were asked to publicly vow fidelity to one another through that stuff specifically, right? Not kinds of things, not categories of things, but like those things. Now that would be, that'd be pretty interesting, right? It might give couples cold feet. It might give me cold feet, like officiating a wedding like that. To say out loud in front of, of God and everyone, a promise to love and cherish this person. Like despite the credit card debt that they're going to put you in. Despite the affair they're going to have. Despite the job they're going to lose because they slacked off. To, to love them despite the health condition that they have like no control over at all, but it's gonna change your lives forever. Despite in-law drama, right? The, the arguments that are gonna last until 3 a.m. or that, that dream that you are going to have to give up if you want to make this work. Just knowing those things up front might be enough for folks to, to not say I do, but to say like I don't. And yet Hosea, the prophet that we're hearing from in the series that we're in. Like he, he looked at Gomer, the, the woman that God called him to marry, knowing that she would have affairs because God told him that she would. Uh, knowing that the paternity of, of any of their kids would be up in the air. Knowing that it'd be embarrassing and it would be costly, not this fairy tale story that would like meet all of his emotional and relational needs. And he looked at her and he said, I do. That sounds absolutely insane. Like even for, for those of us who've been around these last few weeks, who've been in this story for almost a month, that still sounds a little crazy. And the craziest thing of all is that this isn't just a story of two yahoos making a, a terrible decision in Las Vegas. One weekend, God called Hosea to knit his life to someone who would rip his heart out and push him away over and over and over again on purpose so that we would grasp what our relationship with God is like. We are the rebel bride that God just can't let go of. And he wants us to get this. Not, not to rub salt in the wound, all right? Not to make us feel really bad about ourselves so we'll wallow in self-loathing or self-pity or whatever. The point is to wake us up to the depths of his love for us despite who we are and despite what we have done. A love that not only keeps us but restores us. A love that doesn't merely go through the motions and stick around because it has to, like to save face or to fulfill an obligation, but a love that shows up each and every moment of every single day, any situation, no matter what, no matter who, even you and me, because he wants to, because he is love and faithfulness. So we're going to talk about Hosea and Gomer's marriage uh, one last time before this book pivots to something else next week in chapter four. So we get to let this, this marriage metaphor like hopefully sink down into our bones this week, all right? Uh, here's the burden, uh, kind of the main idea of our text. God's redeeming love overcomes all competing loves. 
That's the main burden for today's text. And we'll break that down into three parts. That God loves the unfaithful. That he buys the debtor. And that he restores the ruined. So we'll hop into our first point this morning. And we're just going to look at, at the very first verse for a few minutes. Hosea 3, uh, 1. It says this. The Lord said to me, this is Hosea, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. All right, so uh, our first point this morning is this, that, that God loves the unfaithful. All right, now let's deal with the elephant in the room. Uh, cakes of raisins. Okay. Like, first, no one would abandon anyone over raisins, okay? Like, cakes maybe, not raisins, not raisin cakes or whatever, but, but like, what, what, what is he talking about? What's happening here? Like, chances are, these are cakes that are, like, made from dates, figs, maybe sweetened with a little bit of honey that were offered to worship Baal. Right, Michael's referenced him a few times in sermons. Uh, he's a, a god who, who was worshipped up north in Syria, and he shows up a lot in the Old Testament. Some cakes were even fashioned like into the image of whatever god or goddess was being worshipped. Right? So when I was a kid, uh, I had a birthday cake, and it looked like a Michelangelo from the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Like I had a birthday cake that looked like that. So that's what this is like. Like here folks were, they were sculpting cakes, like Cake Boss or Ace of Cakes or whatever, like to, to look like Baal. All right, and then they would offer them in worship and they'd eat them, hoping that by making Baal happy, he would make them fertile. So this is like the reason why God says they've turned to other gods and loved cakes of raisins. Other gods haven't just caught their eye. All right, they, they're actively worshiping other gods with what they're making, right? And, and, and who it's for and where their hope is, despite the love that God has shown him. And he's shown it, to them in like a million different ways, not the least of which was actually turning them into this huge, thriving nation with borders and kings and prosperity and military victories and all this stuff, uh, a nation whose population would outnumber the stars of the sky or the sands of the desert, all from one elderly couple that he made supernaturally fertile. Right, like Abraham and Sarah, if you know the story. The Bible itself literally says that they were so old that they were as good as dead by the time God said that they would have kids. And, and they did have kids, but it was by grace and not by raisin cakes. The, there's a commentator, David Hubbard, he said it best. It was the funniest thing I've ever read in a commentary before. He said, while Yahweh is loving the Israelites, what are they loving? Raisin cakes. That's like, that's an, a commentary that I read for this passage. That's so true. So, okay, why should we care about this, though? Like, what difference does this make uh, to, to us today? Well, like, we have to understand what makes the specifics of this marriage metaphor actually work in the first place. How is this an analogy for our spiritual life? So there are three things uh, that, if they are, are really true, will actually cause this analogy to break. And we're going to see those three things here uh, just from verse 1. The first thing is this. It breaks if our competing loves are fine. The analogy breaks down if it's not a big deal that we love anyone or anything else like we love the Lord. Or another way to put it, the analogy breaks down if adultery isn't a sin. I mean, if love is love and an affair feels good and doesn't seem to be doing any, any harm, then like, what's the big deal? If you agree to seeing other people give it an open relationship, then like no harm, no foul, right? Like, or if you're, if you're one of those people who don't agree to that stuff, if you're not on board with polyamory, is your like $5 word for the day, um, or if you're not on board with like moving in together or, or doing things that are traditionally reserved for marriage before you've actually tied the knot, then, then you're the one putting love on a leash. Like I've got more love to give and these old rules are like just this one person could possibly let me show. Man, Jose, like you just don't really understand what love is. But God's trying to tell us here that, that we don't get what love is. Covenant love. Distinct. Holy. A love that's set apart for only one other person. A unique giving of yourself, not not a unique giving of part of yourself and not part of yourself to lots of people, but all of yourself to one person in a way that, 
no one else gets. You can't do that with multiple people. Like you can't give all of yourself to multiple folks. The math just does not, it just doesn't check out there, right? That's true for human relationships. That's true for spiritual ones as well. You were meant to distinctly love the Lord and to show that love distinctly, to worship him and to worship him alone. Whether you eat, whether you drink, whatever you do, like he gets your raisin cakes. Idolatry is depicted as adultery here in this whole metaphor because idolatry is unfaithfulness. Even if we try to define it as simply wanting to love other things too. Like we, we can love other things, all right, without, without them being competing loves. We, we love lots of things, but we love them differently, right? Like I love the Lord differently than I love my wife, than I love my kids and my friends differently than I love Ben and Jerry's. Right, And I show that love differently too. Like I don't sing worship songs to Ben and Jerry. I, I don't date Jesus. Like that's not how any of that stuff works. The, the love between us and God is a unique covenantal love. And we should show that distinct kind of love in distinct ways with the one person that we are in that covenant with. So if you profess to love the Lord, does it show up in your life? Is it distinct? Other people should be able to tell. It, it should be plain to the people that are closest to you. But if it's not, like if we've flattened out our love to the point where we can't make distinctions between the way that we love the Lord and the other things in our life, it might be a sign that we're like giving parts of ourselves away to lots of things, but not our whole selves to anyone, including the Lord. And in a competition of love that's like going on inside of us all the time, a competition that God should win, right, every single time, it's, it's wrong to make him compete for our love. All right, so that's, that's the first thing. The second thing, this analogy also breaks down if the competing love of others is fine. All right, like, it feels good when someone gives you special attention, Right, when someone maybe goes out of their way to let you know that they care, when they notice you, when they just seem to get you. Like even if you're in a healthy relationship or you are 100% content not being in one right now, like man, it, it could just really be easy. Even if you don't have a desire to reciprocate at all, to just kind of become unguarded and soak that stuff up. But you, you gotta know that not everyone who shows you affection is doing it for your good. Even if it feels good. God's marriage analogy breaks down if we don't believe that there are competing loves trying to woo us away from the Lord. It's not just that we give our love away to others, but, but we are shown what looks like love by others that we're not in covenant with. Baal wasn't a figment of Israel's imagination. He was a false God, not because he wasn't real, but because he probably was. He just wasn't the one true God of God. He wasn't uh, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. Christianity 101 says that we have a supernatural faith. Our basic beliefs tell us that there are supernatural things that don't have our best interest at heart. It's how we wound up in a mess of sin and suffering in the first place. We have a supernatural enemy who is not flesh and blood. And sometimes his way of trying to get us to, or to get God really to like lose this competition for our love is to make us feel good. To make us think that anyone or anything that makes us feel loved is like a good thing that requires no discernment whatsoever. That something or someone could love us more than the Lord or just as much or, or even just in like small little ways that we feel neglected or unseen by the Lord. And that doesn't always show up as like a snake hanging out in a garden, right? Or a, a little red dude with a pitchfork and some horns or whatever. Sometimes it's someone with a good point on a podcast. Sometimes it is an interested lover in our life. Sometimes it's a, a politician or a pundit or an influencer who just, seems to, who just seems to get you in your life and your problems and offers solutions that can work. It can be a, a pastor who can like baptize any popular opinion or feel good stuff with like a, an out of context Bible verse and a pulpit and a choir to preach to. It can be shiny rocks 
and crystals and tarot cards, your horoscope reading for the day. Things that offer insight, comfort, security beyond the Lord. Look, being loved isn't wrong, okay? Like, being loved is not a wrong thing. Having loving relationships and helpful influences in your life, it's not a bad thing. I'm not telling you, like, look over your shoulder every time you like something that happens, but genuine love and affection that's for you, no matter who or what it's from, will always want to push you towards a greater, fuller, healthier, covenantal love. It will never want you to draw, uh, be drawn away from it. Okay, you need to understand that. It'll never want to fill some gap in that covenant relationship either. We have to be willing to second guess the stuff that feels good, that just kind of seems to work, just like apparently raisin cakes seemed to work, apparently, right? And, and, and say, like, I'm already loved by someone else. They get to love me that way. Even if I feel like that's not happening, even if I don't see that occurring right now, no one else gets to try to love me that way. And it's on me not to receive that, right? This is true of our human covenant relationships, and this is true of our spiritual ones. If there's a love drawing you away from the Lord and his grace and his word, taking your attention away from him, or simply offering to fill a gap that God doesn't seem to be filling, or that you'd rather him not fill for some reason, like, then call it what it is. It's not love. Draw a line and just say no. And then lastly, this analogy breaks down if, if we think any competing love, ours or someone else's for us, could ever keep God from loving us. In this analogy, our adultery and the adulterous love of others doesn't get in the way of God's love for us. And hear me, not just talking about his commitment to us, like not his obligation, his desire just to hang out and fulfill his end of the bargain. His love for us is not derailed when we go off the rails. God calls Hosea to love his wife, to show love to her. It's a command to have affection for someone that he might rather harbor bitterness for or just cut out of his life completely. Some of you might know what that's like. And if that sounds crazy, impossible, even it's because apart from the Lord, it is. And yet this is the kind of relationship that God has established and upholds and wants us to enjoy with him in the gospel. That he doesn't merely oblige himself to us because he, he has to be faithful to his vows. He doesn't merely tolerate us because he's stuck without, but he all out loves us. And he shows his love for us when we don't deserve it when we don't want it, when everything in your bones and everyone around you would want you to think that God's wasting his time on you and then he should give up and start over with somebody else, he loves you. Not just because of who you are or what you've done, but he loves you despite who you are and despite what you've done and that is a greater love. Love that faithfully loves the unfaithful. This whole analogy it falls apart, both the stuff that's really hard to swallow and also the stuff that seems too good to be true. It falls apart if you believe your unfaithfulness can unravel the redeeming love of God for you. And I know that's hard for us to believe, most of us, because that, that strikes a nerve with some of you. Some of you can't believe it because you like look around at your life for evidence of that in some way and you only see reasons to not believe it. But this world of sin and suffering is exactly the world that he's chosen to love us in, not just for better, but when things get worse, in sickness and in health and joy and in pain, right? And for some of you, you hear about this redeeming love of God, and it honestly just rolls right off your back. Like it ricochets off your heart, and you feel nothing, and that should startle you a little bit. Maybe it's because you're afraid to believe it too for some reason. No idea. Some of you might think that this is just the, the love that the Lord has as a newlywed. When we first decided to follow him and then he gets to know us a little bit and his desire for us simmers down. I just want to remind you that Jose and Gomer, they're not newlyweds. This isn't even their first rodeo with affairs. 
All right, literally says, go again, Hosea. Love a woman who's loved by someone else and is an adulteress. For those of you who've walked with Jesus for a while, like whatever that's looked like, if you made a wreck of your life or whatever, he's not bitter towards you. He doesn't want to cut you out of his life. His redeeming love for you is the same today as it was on the first day that he knit his life to yours. But if you have any desire to receive that redeeming love this morning, you've got to let him sift your heart. Like, don't stiff arm conviction. Don't cover up wounds of being betrayed by false love. Like, our unwillingness to let the Lord call it like it is in our life, like to call sin, sin, and infidelity, infidelity, and hurt, hurt. Like, it doesn't keep guilt and shame and pain away. You don't know what it keeps away? We don't acknowledge that stuff. It keeps away our ability to believe that God can see that guilt and that shame and that pain that's already there and we can't believe that he would love us anyway. The love of God goes where it's needed and if you think you never need it or if you think that you can break it, then you'll never receive it. So where do you need it this morning? Because God loves the unfaithful. Number two, God also buys the debtor. Let's look at verses two through three. Hosea says, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. That's 430 pounds of barley. I don't even know what you do with that. Uh, and I said to her, Gomer, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. All right. So I know there's been lots of talk of like uh, student loans and like debt forgiveness and all of that recently. And like, I'm not gonna, you know, that's a landmine. I don't feel like hopping on top of today. All right. Uh, but I, I do want to say that when Kelly and I met, when we got married, we took on each other's school loans. Like we met at Miami and dated throughout college uh, and then got married the summer after we graduated. And we didn't merely just merge our lives together. We also merged our debts. And I'm talking like, a summer home somewhere worth of debts that we could have paid for, for what we forked out every single month in student loan payments. And while, while bringing our debts together meant more debt for both of us, we've also both said that the cost was, was worth it. I think, right? <laughs> Speaking for you there. Because it meant we got each other. Now, we're not sure what happened that put Hosea's wife in a position of needing to be bought back. Like, it's possible that when she left Hosea, she got herself into, like, financial trouble somewhere and, like, needed to place herself in servitude to work off uh, some debt. Maybe she shacked up with another guy, and, and he demanded compensation to let her go back home. Uh, lots of possibilities. The, the value of everything that Hosea gave to buy her back would have been about 30 shekels. That is, uh, in Exodus 21, that happens to be, like, the stated amount of compensation you would offer uh, someone for a slave, all right? So the servitude thing, like, maybe makes sense there. I don't know, but, but we're not sure. Regardless of what happened or why, Hosea found a way to track Gomer down, learn her price, and paid whatever it cost to get her back on his own dime. He pursued her, and then he purchased her. And in this analogy, it's God's people who were in debt. It's God's people who are in debt. He's going to pursue and purchase them. He's going to bail them out. All right, to, to go back to the student loan thing that I really don't want to talk about very much at all because I'll get angry emails. Like, like the, the problem with trying to, to tie the government's loan forgiveness to God's sin forgiveness, it's kind of foundational. It's that the Lord didn't give any of us a loan to go sin. It breaks down right there, right? If you try to apply for a loan for a certain amount of grace, however even that would work, like, so you can go sin, so you could yell at people online, so you could yell at your kids or like cheat on your taxes or cheat on your spouse or whatever. Like the Lord would deny you, okay? That application will be tossed immediately. Gomer left Hosea without his permission. And, and we sin without God's permission. We have stolen every breath that we've taken while sinning. And we owe every single one of them back. Not as part of some terms of some arrangement, right? But as as a consequence for crimes, and we owe our lives. And yet the good news is that the love of God is a redeeming love. It's like a, a voucher or a coupon or, or an offer 
or coupon, whatever. I say cowpon just to make people mad. It's like you could say it that way too. So just like any of those things that you redeem to get something, the redeeming love of God is a love that buys. His love's got purchasing power to transfer ownership in real, tangible ways. And there are three that we see here. And the first one is this, that our debt, our debt now belongs to God. Hosea paid the debt that his, his wife got herself into on his own dime, his own initiative, and he paid it in full. And the Lord has done the same for our sins, right? The life that we owe, God gave himself, all of himself for his bride, Jesus took on flesh and blood. He lived the life that we should live. He died the death that we deserve to die, that he might free us from debt. Colossians 2.14 puts it plain as day. It says that Jesus canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Jesus didn't die as a neat example of martyrdom, all right? Like he, he didn't die as like some inspirational figure who was just like really committed to a cause. Like he, he didn't just begin something on the cross. He finished, finished something on the cross. And that something was the payment for every single one of your sins, past, present, and future. You stand before God forgiven. But not just forgiven. You stand before him as his. And this is the second thing we see, that we now belong to God. Uh, he didn't just write a, a check and walk away. <laughs> like what Jesus paid for on the cross, what, what he purchased was us. Like he, he paid the bill so we would be set free to leave with him. Whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Paul wrote that in Romans 14. Hosea didn't drop off a, a sack of silver and 430 pounds of barley and then leave empty-handed. He said, Gomer's coming with me. Like Hosea's own words were that he bought her. Kel and I weren't looking to like just be nice to help pay someone's student loans off. Like, like that was part of the cost of knitting our lives together so that we could belong together. And what Hosea is saying here is that he didn't just want to pay his wife's bill. He wanted his wife. Likewise, God's saying he didn't just want to give you a clean slate. He wanted to clean you. And in Christ, he's, he's done both. When Hosea tells Gomer, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. That's not a menacing threat, okay? I know we can hear it that way. That's a hopeful, prophetic promise. His money and his barley, like, could free her body from wherever she was bound and bring her home. And his hope now is that the Lord's going to free her heart from whatever it's been bound by. That she might stop seeking love in all the wrong places at a cost to herself and to him and to other people around her and to let herself be loved wholly and fully by one who wouldn't make her pay but would be willing to pay anything for her. And this is what God has done for us and is doing for us in Christ. He, he paid the debt of sin to free us, body and soul from the shackles of guilt and shame and the judgment of God and he's placed in us his Holy Spirit to free our hearts that we might become a people who from the inside out stop seeking a love that we've already been given from places that can never give it to us. God says it this way in Ezekiel 36, verses 25 uh, through 28. It says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. This is the power and the promise of the gospel. Not just that we shouldn't play the whore or belong to somebody else, but that we will learn to dwell with him, body and heart and soul for all of our days because he dwells in and with us. Which leads me to this, the third thing. God now belongs to us. Not that we've purchased him or have like rights to him in some weird subservient way but but this covenant relationship like in this thing he is as much ours as we are his just like I'm as much Kelly's as Kelly 
is mine. Right? When Hosea says that she's not going to be with anybody else, he's not just like throwing his weight around because he just like, you know, dropped a whole bunch of cash on her or whatever. Like, like on the contrary, he says, just like you're not going to be with anybody else, the same is true for me too. Did you catch that at the end? Like the end of this verse can be translated literally as, and I also am for thee, and I also to you. The faithful husband belongs to the unfaithful wife. The God of the universe who is faithful belongs to his unfaithful creatures that he's made. And if that just seems crazy, that like God would, would let himself belong to such unfaithful people, like you're not alone. The, this is funny. The mere thought of, of Hosea belonging to Gomer caused John Calvin, theologian that many folks in this room love, to basically say there's no way that this thing that's in the Bible actually happened. Right, I'm going to throw it up here on the screen. John Calvin said this about Hosea. It said, uh, he said, it doesn't seem consistent with reason that the Lord should gratuitously render, bless you, uh, his prophet contemptible. Doesn't seem reasonable to do that. For, for how could he expect to be received by the public after having brought on himself such a disgrace? In other words, like, ain't no way God would make a prophet do something like marry and chase after and buy an adulteress on purpose because it was it would ruin his reputation he'd be canceled and with all due respect to a guy that can no longer defend himself because he's in the ground like that's the gospel buddy yeah right like I don't know what to tell you like Jesus let himself get smeared and insulted and literally crucified in the public eye because of his divine pursuit of us and it's it's for his reputation that he's not satisfied with just paying off our debt well, we keep chasing after every fake competing love because we share his name. But, but he's committed to changing who we are, learning to love and be loved by him, helping us walk in his ways, as he said in Ezekiel, so that our covenant relationship and his covenant love and his reputation might just be the, the greatest thing uh, to be admired and seen in the way that we love him and in the way that we relate with him, that everyone would see the way that we live in light of that sweet thing. So if you think Hosea should have tossed Gomer to the side, if you think like you can't fathom God asking him to pursue after somebody who's, who's done everything they can to run away and escape his love and care, then, then you're starting to get what makes the grace of God so radical. A grace that purchases body, heart, soul, past, present, future, that creates and keeps and promises a covenant relationship where you and God actually belong together. So how are you living as if you really don't belong together? How often are you motivated to, to live or to sing uh, or to serve as if you're still in debt to God? As if he's like giving you now a loan that you have to pay back for his sacrifice. It's easy to do that. And sometimes it feels good and it sounds noble to do that, but it nullifies the very nature of grace. It's a gift that you never earned and a cost that you never pay back. And the whole point is that God doesn't want you to, right? He doesn't want your sacrifices or your stuff. He wants you. God loves the unfaithful. He buys the debtor. And in his redeeming love, God restores the ruined. And this is point three this morning. Let's look at verses four and five. This is God speaking. He says, For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Imagine life in ruins. What's that look like? What do you picture? Uh, Lots of movies, every other show or book or whatever that seems to come out these days is like set against the backdrop of some post-apocalyptic world where like folks are like scraping by in the wake of some war or natural disaster, some like weird shift in politics or power or whatever. Resources are scarce, right? Nature's taken over cities. There's like trees growing in malls and vines climbing up buildings and all that stuff. There are outlaws that roam the streets and people band together in factions and I don't know, maybe there's like a system to fight or to build zombies somewhere, probably. I don't know, like, like, and in some ways, this isn't, minus the zombies, too far off from where God's people during the time of Hosea, like that's where they're gonna find themselves eventually. 
conquered and carted off to a foreign land? Or just like left to sit in the city streets that were once bustling and alive but will eventually have been just laid to waste by their enemies? Which might sound weird because we just talked about like all this hopeful stuff, right? Hosea had gone out and he bought, bought back Gomer. He brought her home. He declared his commitment to her and his hope, hope for like a heart change in her. And so surely this means God's people are in the clear, right? Like things are looking up. No, not yet, because before they'll dwell with the Lord many days, they'll have to dwell many days without him. And that's kind of on their own. The analogy is not broken. It's like this analogy is just pointing towards future realities, sometimes just as much as present day ones for them. Israel and and Judah, God's people, they, they weren't even done leaving yet by this point uh, in the story and their infidelity towards the Lord, they, they still had some distance be- to, to put between them and God. And God was letting them go. Like he was watching them pack their things and, and walk out the door. Like if you think about it, like so far, what we've seen, this pursuit that's been happening, it's been pretty one-sided. It's only been a, a divine pursuit. It's been God who has loved and, and shown love and made promises and kept promises and, and even warned them that, that their unfaithfulness was going to lead to their ruin. And yet at some point, after so long, God's like, okay, go chase after that thing, that one that you think will love you more. And just like what happened with Gomer who, who thought that she found a, a better love and then wound up enslaved or entrapped somewhere. God's people are going to find themselves in a place they didn't expect. But it's the place that every competing counterfeit love will always one day lead us to. Just absolute ruin. It doesn't matter who or, or what you think loves you more than the Lord. Like whether all together or in just one little way that you think God's not meeting your needs. Like in the end, every competing Love will always be exposed as a deadbeat, predatory fraud. And while like that ruin, it's going to be physical for God's people here. Like the temple is going to be destroyed. People will die. The city of Jerusalem will burn all the precious stuff taken away. The worst part of all, like the real ruin that this text describes, it's not physical. It's not the stuff. It's not the goods. It's relational. God's people will find themselves alone. They won't have a king from David's family that would connect them with God's protection and provision and promises, nor will they have a a worldly occupying king, not even a prince. They won't have a sacrifice to offer in repentance or in worship to the Lord, nor will they have a, a sacred pillar where they can like call for Baal and bring him raisin cakes right, and ask for his help. They won't have an ephod. That's like the clothes that that they would need to wear to meet the Lord in the temple. And then in their homes, they wouldn't even be able to find a a little idol to pray to. Everything this passage describes as being the worst of the worst isn't merely the loss of a few things, the loss of goods that they'd like foolishly chase after and chased gods for. Like this passage describes their ruin as being without any divine connection to any god anywhere in their midst. Just pure spiritual isolation that they brought on themselves. What do you do when you've left your spouse for another lover and then your lover leaves you? This is the predicament that God's telling us people they're gonna find themselves in. There are surely all kinds of things that like, that would bring your life crumbling down. You could probably imagine what some of those things are that would turn your plans or expectations, what you thought was even real, like just upside down, 180 degrees, and yet being alone, that's another level of, of devastation. Even, even the most fortunate circumstances, right? Being on top of the world, like if you're up there by yourself, there is a hollowness to it if there's nobody else up there with you. And the funny thing is that like not even marriage in and of itself is a remedy for this aloneness, right? And Hosea is exhibit A of this thing, that that marriage is not some magic key to a relationally full life. Gomer's clearly not satisfied, right? Hosea's committed, but I can guarantee you like his marriage isn't meeting all of his emotional needs right now, right? Some of the most relationally full people that I know in my life are single. Some of the loneliest people that I know 
are married. And here's the upshot of that. The ruin that comes from a lack of love in your life. Genuine, unconditional love. It cuts through every circumstance. It taints every good thing that you could get or you could chase. Which is why we build our life here at the Village Church on the good news of a redeeming covenant love that also transcends any and every circumstance that you could ever find yourself in or get yourself into. Like, God knows that in this life, not only are there competing loves, but that our hearts are sometimes barren wastelands of love. Like, real talk. Like, a huge part of that is because you and I, we don't give and receive and experience the kind of love that he originally intended for us in this world that he created. Some of us have been starved of love by the people who should have shown it to us the most. Taught all the wrong things about love, about, about ourselves, about how to show it, about how to get love, what it means some of us reject it when it is shown to us. Some of us are skeptical of love. Some of us withhold it from others and, and use love like a bargaining chip. Sin is real. Suffering is real. The enemy who loves to steal and sabotage love is real. And all that has left our hearts in ruins to the point that like the world doesn't know what love is. And, and those of us who have known genuine love, we have a hard time remembering it and holding on to it throughout the day. And the Lord knows this. Which is why a huge part of what also makes his good news good is that on the last day, he's going to rid the world of sin and suffering and evil. And from that moment on, we will not hunger or thirst for love ever again. We won't be confused about what it is or how to get it or what it's supposed to look like. There will be no more fake love, no more betrayal, no more competition. He will completely restore those of us whose love has been twisted uh, and taken from us in this life, and we will get to know what it means to be fully loved, and we will not forget it. In the presence of him and in the presence of his people forever. That, that last day, it's not come yet. It's coming, but it's not here yet. But we are now living in the last days that God mentions in this text, the days on this side of the cross and the empty tomb of Jesus, where the hope of Hosea that his, that his bride's heart would return to him is declared a certainty for God's people. As surely as they will have to spend many days away, they will in fact come back home. And they will come back home by grace. What do you do when you've left your spouse for another lover and then your lover leaves you? The Lord says, come back home. You might need to sort things out, but the Lord is patient. And the shame that like, you're afraid of feeling when you walk through the door, or the, guilt that, the guilt that you might carry as you come back, the scarlet letter that you think is hanging over your head, you, you won't find that from him. You will not hear, I told you so's. Accusations like that will never come from him because they were dealt with on the cross. Have you been unfaithful to your spouse, to someone else, to the Lord? Have you dug yourself into debt financially, spiritually, in your sin? Have you led your life in any way, shape, or form into ruin? Then, then you're not the person that he'd move on from. You're not too much for him. You're exactly the kind of person that he came to redeem. Like you are the object of his divine pursuit, if that's you. It doesn't matter how far away the Lord feels before you ever believed in him. It, even if you've not believed in him, in him right now, like he did look into the future and he saw what it would take to knit his life to yours and he made the first move in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus who's sitting on the throne of David today. And today, for the first time, or for the first time in a long time, like, you get to return to him. And he promises that you will find nothing but him and his goodness. God's redeeming love. It overcomes every competing love. But just like any relationship, like Gomer with Hosea and Israel and Judah with the Lord, it's a two-way street. 
God pursues first. And then we get to live our lives in response to that love and grace that he's shown us. And so we get to invite you to do that right now. So the band can come on up and get ready for some music. But what I want to invite you all into is just a time of reflecting and repenting and responding. I want to invite you if like you've never trusted Jesus, you don't know the love of God for you, never known what that looks like or why even Jesus is still such a big deal, we'd love to chat with you about that. If you're a, a believer in here who is like wayward and you feel like there's no way the Lord could still be about you and for you and love you, set your mind on what we just talked about this morning. There's nothing you could do that would break his redeeming love for you. We get to, to let the Lord sift through our hearts what's there, the wounds, the hurts, the sins, all of that stuff, and we get to respond. And so a few ways that you guys can do that. First, you can, you can pray. You can sit in your seats and do that and talk with the Lord. Uh, you can uh, sit over at the prayer bench and pray if you want to or find another space in the 210 to do that by yourself. There'll also be people who would love to pray with you, all right? Not just about sermon stuff, but if there's other things in your life, we would love to pray with you. There'll be some folks back there by that red tree and uh, Kel, my wife, and I will be along the back wall there. Uh, you can also partake in communion. If you're a believer this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, then this table is for you, right? There's uh, uh, some, some bread and juice that you can take in, in the, the bread, the cracker, it represents the body of Christ that was broken for you. And the juice represents the blood of Christ that was shed for you. All of that, the initiating, redeeming love of God that he purchased, not just your sin, but he also bought you. And you get to respond to that this morning. So we'd encourage you before you do that, if you're a believer, like reflect, repent, make sure you come up with a clean conscience so you can rejoice and respond to grace fully in that. If you're not a believer this morning, uh, then this table is not for you, but the gospel is and we are and Jesus is for you. And so we would love to chat with you more uh, about that stuff. And then lastly, you can sing. It's a great way we get to respond to the grace of God is by letting him have the voice that he gave you, however good or bad that might be. All right, so take the next few minutes, reflect, repent, and respond to the redeeming love of God.